Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Ghosts by Lord Dunsany. Uh, this is um, from a book called The Sword of Wellerin and Other Stories, probably published in 1908. I, I, I want to say that it's from this book, because that, that's what everybody says on the internet, but I found um, evidence that a lot of stories were published separately. However, there's reason to think that this one was published in here, in this collection, because it has Sydney Syme illustrations. And Sydney Syme illustrations, I've heard, I've heard this. A um, friend of mine told me this. I don't know where he got that information, but um, that the stories were actually done because of Sydney Syme's uh, illustrations. And that if that's true, I think that that has a bearing on the reading of the story because the illustrations are quite striking. Um, the other book, the other story that's in here that is um, like that, um, I want to say is the is the Horde of the Gibbelins, but I don't think that's actually in this book. But it is also illustrated by Sidney Symes, so it might be a we don't know what inspired this particular story but there are other inspirations beside the uh, whether the illustrations inspired it nice preamble <laughs> uh what's this, what, so, what um, happens in the stories eric what happens in the story that's an excellent question yeah it looked out one way the story is sort of a, a dramatic recounting of the experience of the narrator who tells us that he doesn't believe in ghosts. He is at uh, a, an old castle that's been in the family for ages that his brother occupies. Uh, the narrator does not. He and his brother get into an argument um, about whether or not ghosts are real. The brother goes upstairs, apparently still trying to convince the narrator that ghosts are real, muttering as he goes winding up the staircase and the, carrying his lighted candle. Um, although the story seems to be set in the period in which it's published, the beginning of the 20th century, the, the castle is not <laughs> much is made of the fact that you won't find here the uh, the accoutrements uh, or the debris of modern society like empty meat tins and so on uh, or telephone lines or you know any of that stuff or cheap so novels. this or cheap novels indeed uh, so he tells us that the brother goes up he goes into a darkened room and then he describes the room and also that there's a door in the room that leads someplace that they never go to because something happened in there that the family never speaks of. And he never does. <laughs> he tells us that and he never does. Um, but then as he's sitting, uh, smoking a cigar and um, perhaps the smoke is making his head a little spinning because um, he skipped a dinner out of pique with his brother. Um, 
some people come into the room um, dressed in Jacobean garb. Uh, that is, they're from the the, the beginning of the, the, 16th, the 17th century, um, James I, I suppose. And um, they're talking to each other. And then he hears these snuffling sounds and claws skittering on the floor and in rush these huge animals like a sort of a cross between a bloodhound and a mastiff with their noses down and slobbering tongues and they distribute themselves among these people in the room and he knows he just knows looking at their deep red eyes that go so deeply into their bodies that that they are the sins of these ghosts but of course, he doesn't believe in ghosts. Even if he were to see them himself, he wouldn't believe in ghosts, he's told his brother. Because after all, many people in delirium have seen red rats, but that doesn't mean that we believe that there are red rats. Um, interesting, the red of the rats and the red of these eyes. Maybe there are no ghosts in this story at all. Maybe it's all a hallucination. But as things get worse and as the, the, the animals suddenly recognize him, they come over to him and he begins to realize, looking at them, that he should kill his brother. But he thinks, oh my God, no, 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 this is not, I, 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 how can I conceive of killing my brother? And so he, he apparently runs a geometry proof in his head. And thinking of the geometry proof, the apparitions, whatever they are, real or not, just disappeared. And as he says, I moved toward the door to get the revolver, meaning to kill his brother. A hideous exultation arose among the beasts. But, he says, he's speaking, telling us what he said to himself, the angle CEA is common and therefore AED equals CEB in the same way CEA equals DEB, QED. <laughs> it was proved. Logic and reason reestablished themselves in my mind. There were no dark hounds of sin. The tapestried chairs were empty. It seemed to me an inconceivable thought that a man should murder his brother. And that's the last line. Leaving me, at least, Jesse, um, with a number of questions, which is what I expect that Lloyd Dunsany was hoping. Mm -hmm. He leaves me leaves me asking in the large sense, uh, what is the relationship between logic and belief? What is the relationship between reason and fantasy? What is the relationship between family um, relations? After all, the narrator doesn't live with his brother. This is a an unusual visit and and myth like Cain and Abel, because after all, it is conceivable for a man to murder his brother. The very first murder in human history, according to the Bible, was that. And then there are a lot of smaller questions. Mm -hmm. And by smaller, I don't mean less important, but more localized. For example, um, we are told that the room is full of all sorts of tapestries. Um, the tapestries are on the chairs. And when we're first told about how old the castle is, we're told that the people who made those tapestries, the, the fingers that, that uh, embroidered those tapestries, 
have long moldered under the ground. Now, that does tell us something about antiquity being a presence in this story. (coughs) Pardon me. But the tapestries themselves are worth coming back to at the end of the story to remind us that these are not just empty chairs, but tapestried chairs that were empty. And I, I don't know about you, but I've I've had the the pleasure of uh, going to uh, many many old places, uh, ancient homes, castles, and museums, including the Musée de Cluny in Paris, which is their museum of medieval tapestries. And every single one of them depicts some scene or other. There is something mythical about the creatures or people one sees in tapestries. And so, you know, do we really allow ourselves to be seated on a world concocted out of whole cloth? (laughs) Anyway, that's what I think is in the story. There's a lot. There's a lot in here about this story. There is a lot to say. Um, I I think it's a pretty funny story, uh, at least in parts. Um, it has almost a murder happen, but um, we we get away from it in a very cute ending. I want to talk about that, but I also want to place it in its context. Um, this is a it's kind of a weird story um, because it is it it's in a tradition that maybe people aren't. Uh, as well aware of now as they would have been at the time. Um, in 1896, there's a story by H.G. Wells called The Red Room, which is about a man who believes that there's no ghosts in a certain room, and he will prove it by staying a night in that room. Uh, he brings a revolver <laughs> to this event. Um, why? In order to shoot the ghost that, that he believes isn't there? Why would he bring a revolver? A revolver rears its head in this story, uh, but it's in the house and not in his pocket. Um, the, who is he going to murder with that revolver is his brother. In the other story, it's um, not clear who he's going to shoot unless it is the ghost. So this is this breaking away from the ghost. In that story, the Wells story, the only ghosts that were in the room, it turns out, at least in one reading, are the ones that he brought in with him. And I think that that is a very similar point to one that's going on in this story. We are set up to anticipate all these ghosts, even though he insists there are none. And that even if he did see them, he still would not believe in them. <laughs> and that, that is where the humor starts to come in. I think also um, that both of those stories, and many others probably, um, come from a, another story called... Um, the most haunted house in England. Now, this is actually not supposed to be a fiction story. It's supposed to be a non-fiction story about a fiction author named Captain Marriott, who was a famous author in the 19th century, a friend of Charles Dickens. And he went into a house specifically to prove that there was no ghosts in it and that he thought that, in fact, it was smugglers who were making noises in the sea caves or something underneath the house. And yet on the stairway, he saw a phantom, uh, the so-called brown lady um, of uh, Rainham Hall. Um, There's other stories like the tapestry chamber that fit into this. So he is not 
by any means doing something original here. He's playing a very uh, common game that many authors did. And yet, it's so interesting. So many things in this are awesome. I love um, that you pointed to the the biblical uh, implications of a brother killing his brother. There's another uh, standout in the Bible uh, in here too, which is uh, the north wind, and later called out. Um, here's the line: the grand their grandsires. This is the trees, the cedars, New Lebanon, the, the cedars that surround the house and nod while the north wind blows. New Lebanon, and their grandsires of these were the servants of the king of Tyre and came to Solomon's court. So, it, this is reaching back and back and back in time. And a, me, a beautiful extended metaphor about the house is to do with the house being sort of an island in, the, in a sea of cedars. It's, I want to read this line here. I know not how many centuries had lashed against it, their evanescent foam of years, but it was still against, uh, but it was still unshattered, and all about it were the things of long ago, as cling strange growths of some sea-defying rock. Here, like the shells of long dead limpets, were armor that men encased themselves in long ago. Here too were tapestries of many colors, beautiful as seaweed. No modern flotsam ever drifted hither. So it's, it's got this beautiful language of description, and yet we don't really know what it looks like. We get his sort of poetic description of it, and I think that that really sets us up, along with the handful of cigars and many cups of strong tea, and of course n nothing to eat. So he goes in looking for ghosts, and yet... He doesn't believe in them. And when they come, he's, ah, yes, they're expected. The smoky fire in the fireplace, the north wind blowing in the trees around, it's all set up to be a very ghostly story. And yet he gets something more than he asked for. He gets beyond that door that leads to the hall that no one ever uses because of something we do not speak of. We get the sin, the sin that comes and licks the hands and faces and throats of all the ghosts. And it is so rich and beautiful. And it turns less comedy into a horror. And then it goes back to comedy at the end. Um, I think, in a certain sense. Um, did you, like me, draw out what he did uh, with his calculations? If two straight uh, lines cut one another, I oh, think. Yeah. yeah, oh, no, I, I mean, I remember learning that in, in uh, what, as my sophomore year in high school. Mm -hmm. uh, I remembered that. But what I also noted was that QED, mm -hmm. quote erat demonstratum, thus it is demonstrated that one puts at the end of the solution of uh, a, Eucl a proof of a Euclidean theorem, mm -hmm. uh, there's a form to those Euclidean theorems, uh, Euclidean theorems, and they begin with hypothesis. Now, very interestingly, um, right? You take a theorem, I mean, you pr prove the theorem, you begin with a hypothesis, 
and then you construct the diagram and then you use the diagram in order to go stepwise until you get to, in fact, the, the hypothesis, QED. There is no hypothesis here. He doesn't tell us what he's proved. What he's proved is something that has gone, gone without introduction. Um, yes, I, I, I pictured it. I didn't actually draw it with my pen because I'd seen it so many times. But it's an interesting proof that he chose to use, I think, Jesse, mm -hmm. uh, because what it does is um, it's to bisect. It, the idea is to prove that if you bisect two angles, the opposing angles are equal. Mm -hmm. And it, it, that's the hypothesis that goes unstated. The, um, the proof depends upon the fact that if you have a line and you have an other line that goes through it, the total arc from the line back to itself, drawn around um, the other line that cuts through it, will be 180 degrees. Mm -hmm. So the opposing angles will always be equal no matter the angle of the opposition. And it seems to me that's sort of cute because it suggests that there is a tension between the brothers and yet there is something about them that is always equal. Um, the brother who went upstairs believes that there are ghosts. And by golly, other people have said they've seen them. And the brother who stays downstairs says, I don't believe in ghosts, um, even though I've seen them. And you can picture them at breakfast the next morning with the brother who stayed downstairs saying, aha, you see, I saw ghosts and I still don't believe yep. them. So they, they're just proving each other's point of view on this particular geometric proof, which is not a proof. Well, uh, that's not actually why, because I, uh, I literally, I, I was not familiar with this in school. Math was not my best subject. Geometry, I guess, is what this is, is kind of math, right? But I, I started yep. doing it, and then I re read it, and I thought, oh, no, I bisected it wrong here. My first one is wrong. So I, I read it again and, and redid it. So it says, if two straight lines cut one another, I said, the opposite angles are equal. Makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. Left, a, left, let A, B, and C, D cut one another at E. Okay. Then, mm -hmm. so I did that part first. And then he says, then the angles C, E, A, and C, E, B equal two right angles. And, oh, I didn't do right angles, so I changed mine, right? I started again. And then it says proposition. Uh, that's what he said. Proposition uh, That's not 13, what he's saying. right? That's not what he's saying. CEA, you did cut it, right? It doesn't matter how they meet, right? If you've got CEA and CEB, what you've got is the two angles on one side of the, the line AB. And the two, two right angles equals 180 degrees, which is to say a straight line. Right. He's absolutely correct. No, I'm not. I'm not it disputing that. What I'm, I'm. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how you draw CD. They will. They will equal two. They are not two separate right angles. Together, they are two right angles. I hear you. What I'm saying is that when I drew it the first time, I just had two lines A and B and C and D yeah. and that they intersected. But then the next yes. line says that one is a right angle, at least one of them, and of course that means all of them are right angles. No, it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> it does? Uh, yes, it does. Because we've got an Where? intersection. And if you follow, if you literally get out a pen and paper and do this, you will see what is drawn. 
and it's, I think, very interesting. So, let A and B and C and D cut one another at E, point E. Then the angle CEA and CEB equal two right angles. Got it. That's correct. Also, CEA and AED equal two right angles. And what yes. have you drawn? You've drawn two lines intersecting. You've drawn what? a crucifix. You have not. You have. He doesn't. You haven't, Jesse. Okay. He doesn't say that each is a right angle. He says together they equal two right angles. And if you do it the way he says with the first sentence, and then you realize, oh, he was talking about right angles. No, he's not. That's the whole point. In fact, that's the point of Euclid's proof, is that even if they are not right angles, the opposite angles will be equal to each other. Maybe my math's wrong. <laughs> I've got a crucifix on my paper. Yes, it will be a crucifix if you if you have AB cut CD at a right angle. But that's not what's said here. This says if they cut at any angle. Um, I, the opposite angles are equal. That will let A, B, C, D cut one another at E. Then the angle C, E, A, C, E, B equal two right angles. That's right. It doesn't say that each is a right angle. The two angles together make two right angles. That's, that's true. Yes, it's true. No matter what angle they intersect at. Okay. So it doesn't have to be a cross. What does he do to dispel <laughs> what does what? he do to dispel the possession of sin that's coming over him that makes him want to shoot his brother, dress up the body, put flour on his face like a man that had been acting as a ghost? I understand why it would be convenient to think of it as a crucifix, and it may in fact be that the two lines intersected at right angles. But if they did intersect at right angles, there would be no point to having the proof. The proof is only significant to suggest that if they don't intersect at right angles, the opposite angles will still be equal to each other. That's the point. And this is significant. I think, in that it forms a crucifix. I can see the man possessed, standing, headed towards the drawer, wherever it is in the house, with a pistol in it, headed to kill his brother, and he dispels the possession. Not simply by doing this equation in his head, although I think that that is part of the point, but also by genuflecting in a kind of cross upon his body we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to solve this one in the amount of time that we have no uh, I, I as i said i in euclid's uh geometry uh, principles or ge elements of geometry the the point of that particular theorem is that even if the lines intersect at any angle from the infinitesimal to the right um, so you're going to wind up with an acute angle and an obtuse angle on one side of one line and acute angle and obtuse on the other side. The point is simply that the opposing angles will be the same as each other, which also works. But I understand why you want to have the, the geometry there. I, I mean, the, the, the Christology there. I think, though, 
at an at a, at a I think there's a lot going on having to do not with, I would say, the metaphor, but the 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 personification. I mean, the, these cedars were were servants and they nod as if they are old men thinking over some philosophical problem together. Mm-hmm. Uh, the sea of the world around this house reminds me a lot of Dover Beach, where, in fact, the sea of faith is receding and we are left in this very, very difficult world. What is the the cause of the animosity between the brothers. It's it's like you and me arguing over geometry, except they were arguing over the existence of ghosts. I love the language here. Mm-hmm. The argument that I had with my brother, this is how it begins, in his great lonely house, will scarcely interest my readers. Well, then why should I bother reading on? This is not a trustworthy narrator. No. Not those, at least, whom I hope may be attracted by the experiment that I undertook. Now, the word experiment can mean experience, you know, just something that happened to me. But he doesn't say an experience that I had, an experiment that I had. He said that he undertook it. It's as if he were doing all of this intentionally. He's trying to have a fight with his brother. He wants to have a reason to go against him or... He wants to see if they can just prove uh, ghosts. But how could that be if he wouldn't trust his own perceptions? And by the strange things that befell me in that hazardous region into which so lightly and so ignorantly I allowed my fancy to enter. So he's saying, oh, you know, I foolishly made this up. Then it says this, the last line of the first paragraph, it was at then comes the name of the castle Mm -hmm. that I had visited him. And the castle is spelled O-N-E-L-E-I-G-H, which, as I look at it, could be pronounced one lee. Mm -hmm. And we know what an L-E-A is. It's a meadow and so on. And this is no meadow. This is a summit. But it turns out that L-E-I-G-H in some dialects of English means to lie. Mm -hmm. This is to tell an untruth. So it is that one lie that I had visited him. And I can't help but wonder if this whole story is a lie Mm -hmm. that he is telling himself the same way that Poe's narrators externalize their own sins. And no, that's, you know, my logic accounted for this to me, says the the narrator in the black cat. (laughs) Logic indeed. But in this story... The narrator actually seems not to have committed a crime because he does superimpose logic. And as you said, by giving us that lovely little tour through antecedent horror stories, what Dunsany is doing is suggesting that, by golly, if, if we make all this stuff up in our own minds, we should be able to change the world by thinking differently, except when you finish the story. You don't think differently. You don't remember the Euclid. You remember the ghosts. That's true. Oh, one Lee or one lie or lonely house, right? I, I, I think this is a terrific story, and there is a lot more to say about it. There's always more to say. And remember... 
You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. Thank you.